Hi, and welcome back to Your School is Effing You, a podcast about all the ways that the modern institution of education is failing students, teachers, and democracy. I'm your host, Timothy Budd. I'm a teacher of philosophy and humanities in Montreal, Quebec, in Canada. Today I want to tell a different kind of a story. The first two episodes of this podcast covered the problems with grading. This is an important topic and I'll certainly be coming back to it. I'm definitely interested in talking about standardization and the use of the standard curve. And for those of you who are specifically interested in the episodes on grading, I'm thinking about using a hashtag so that you can find them more easily, something like grades ruin everything. If you think this is a good idea, or a bad idea for that matter, feel free to let me know. But today I want to look at something a little bit less critical, perhaps a little bit more enlightening. It's a big subject, and it's one that I'll also want to come back to in future episodes. Broadly speaking, I guess you could say that the topic today is, what is education for? I know this is a huge question. I don't expect to answer it today. Or perhaps ever. But it's a worthy question, and I want to look at how others have answered it in the past. I don't think there's just one good answer to this question. I think there are many. And part of the reason is because much depends on the context in which the question is asked. Are we asking, what is education for, for the individual student? For the particular type of school? For the nation? For humanity? For democracy? For the economy? These are all perfectly legitimate ways of asking the question, and they all have different answers. Those answers likely overlap. The second reason why there's going to be more than one answer to the question, what is education for, is because education is a moving target. Our knowledge of the world and of one another is constantly advancing. You can think of the question of pinning down what education is for as similar to trying to legislate tech. It's impossible to imagine legislating tech once and for all, as if you can find some sort of overarching, broad bill that intends to regulate tech forever. Tech is always changing, and the law will constantly have to move to keep up with it. The same is true of education. But none of this should prevent us from asking the question, what is education for? In fact, I think it should encourage us to ask it often and be ready to change or update our answers. Today I want to look at two classic answers. This is episode three, Education as Socialization and as Individualization, Rorty versus Baldwin. So here goes. What I want to do today is use an article by Richard Rorty as our starting point. In fact, I want to use Rorty to introduce the two answers and then pit Rorty against James Baldwin in an attempt to show that these two answers are not of equal value, though they're both important. So here goes. The article by Rorty is entitled Education as Socialization and as Individualization. 
To my knowledge, this is the only article Rorty ever published specifically and solely dedicated to the topic of education. It was originally published as Education Without Dogma, Truth, Freedom, and Our Universities, and it was written largely as a reaction to Bloom's The Closing of the American Mind and to Hirsch's Cultural Literacy. The details of these two works, which are both very important, are not terribly important to our discussion, except perhaps to note that both are conservative attacks on the state of higher education in the 1980s. I mention this simply because this will help us make sense of the motivation behind Rorty's argument in the article. So, let's dig into each of these answers to the question, what is education for? Starting with socialization. There are many ways to approach education as socialization, but I think the best way, the way that I find uh, the simplest to explain, especially to students, is to put it in terms of games. To be socialized in the broadest sense is to know how to live with other humans. This means having some sort of understanding or awareness of the rules of the game of being human or of being human in the 21st century. Baldwin puts it this way in A Talk to Teachers. It would seem to me that when a child is born, if I'm the child's parent, it is my obligation and my high duty to civilize that child. Man is a social animal. He cannot exist without a society. A society, in turn, depends on certain things which everyone within that society takes for granted. I think he's referring here to the rules of the game. And within the game of being a human who lives with other humans in the 21st century, there are plenty of other sub-games, if you like. There's the rules of riding the metro, the rules of waiting in line, the rules of getting married before a justice of the peace, the rules of walking on a public sidewalk. Now, much of early education, so pre-kindergarten, for example, much of early education is linked to precisely this kind of socialization, learning the rules of being a human in the world. Children in preschool and kindergarten are learning not to hit, learning how to say I'm sorry, learning how to keep quiet when others are sleeping. And more specifically, and this is for better or for worse, they're learning how to be students. In this connection, I sometimes think of an anecdote that comes either from Henry Giroux or from Peter McLaren. I don't quite recall, so if this anecdote is familiar to you and you remember where it comes from, please send me a message uh, or please leave a comment. But whether it was Giroux or McLaren or somebody else that I can't remember, the story has it that he was visiting a school in Ireland and the particular classroom that he was visiting uh, included children of a number of different ages. So let's say six, seven, eight, nine-year-olds. And this was surprising to, again, McLaren or Giroux, because North America had abandoned this practice some time ago. Whoever it was, he asked the teacher, why do you keep all of these kids of different ages and different levels together in the same room? And her answer, which I thought was brilliant and enlightening, was this. If we separate them, how are the seven-year-olds going to learn how to be eight-year-olds? I think this captures a real sense of the importance of socialization in early education. And socialization as learning the rules of gameplay continues well after kindergarten, well after primary school. That is, once a child begins studying biology or history or mechanics in middle school or high school, 
she's still just learning the rules of how these various games are played. You might think of it as a kind of roleplay. What does a professional historian do? What does a professional physicist do? What kinds of moves are available in the chemistry lab? What kinds of moves are available to solve certain kinds of problems in calculus? I often tell my philosophy students that although I want them to practice doing philosophy, practice being philosophers, they won't really be allowed to play the game as fully-fledged players until they're working on a dissertation. That's when they'll be making original moves in the game. So on the surface, it seems pretty clear. Socialization is a key component, uh, a core element of early education, primary education, secondary education. There is, of course, a negative side to socialization as a key component of education. Many of you who are listening are familiar with the work of Paulo Freire and the notion of a hidden curriculum. From the perspective of the hidden curriculum, conformity is the name of the game. It's not just a question of conforming to the rules of how biology is done in the 21st century, or how physics is done in the 21st century, or how English literature is critiqued in the 21st century. It's also learning the rules of being obedient to a teacher, being obedient to the system. And this has much bigger and much broader consequences when we think of education as part of democracy. Then all of a sudden, democracy looks a whole lot like conformity. And conformity, even within the context of democracy, is problematic. Even democracy must progress. So, does education as socialization promote acceptance? Should it promote acceptance? Okay, putting education as socialization to the side for a minute, let's talk about education as individualization. If socialization is a matter of learning the rules of different kinds of games, then individualization is a matter of learning how and when to bend, break, or change those rules. It's not just a question of rebellion. It's a question of progress. I think that in the background of this conversation, uh, we have to have Thomas Kuhn in mind. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure Rorty does. Individualization, on the other hand, is going to be a matter of abandoning an old paradigm for a new one. Kuhn calls this revolutionary science. Normal science is like playing an already established game. Playing the game of being a professional physicist. Playing the game of being a professional philosopher means playing by the rules that those around you play by. The more progress we make using these same rules, the more solid these rules become, the more codified they become. On the other hand, as we explore more of the world and more of ourselves in that world, we butt up against anomalies, phenomena that cannot be explained using the current system, using the current model, using the current rules. When this happens, we have no choice but to abandon the rules we're currently using and look for new ones that will allow us to explain everything we were able to explain before, plus the new phenomena. This is revolutionary science. This is progress. Kuhn's idea of a paradigm shift 
doesn't apply only to the so-called hard sciences. The so-called linguistic turn, about which Rory has much to say in his other works, including his book by that very name, uh, the so-called linguistic turn in modern philosophy was certainly a paradigm shift as well. But we can and should also think of paradigm shifts in democracy as well. Democracy is not a static framework, at least it shouldn't be. It requires reformers to show us where the current rules, where the current laws and policies are restrictive or harmful to underserved and underrepresented members of our society. Now, at this point, Rorty draws a conclusion. And there's a certain irony in Rorty's conclusion. As a, a, a neo-pragmatist and follower of Dewey, Rorty spent much of his career rejecting and dismantling dichotomies such as that between socialization and individualization. This, however, is one place where he embraces it. He embraces a dichotomy that he would otherwise, that we would otherwise expect him to dismiss. Many scholars, by the way, before me have called him out on this, not just within the context of his philosophy of education, but with regards to his notion of political engagement as well. He sees the interplay between socialization and individualization as a sort of truce between the conservative and progressive elements in education. Bloom and Hirsch, in different ways, want school children to learn the classics, to have a common store of texts, uh, texts and ideas to allow them to speak to one another in fruitful ways. The progressives want to challenge this notion of a classic. But since primary and secondary education rely principally on socialization, learning the rules, learning to follow the rules, and post-secondary education concentrates on allowing students to question the rules, it seems the conservatives and progressives can each get something of what they want. Rorty thinks of this as a sort of happy compromise. We'll leave primary and secondary schools to the conservatives and post-secondary education to the progressives. Baldwin doesn't see this as a compromise, but as a paradox. And I'm going to quote from the beginning of his talk. Now, the crucial paradox which confronts us here is that the whole process of education occurs within a social framework and is designed to perpetuate the aims of society. Thus, for example, the boys and girls who were born during the era of the Third Reich, when educated to the purposes of the Third Reich, became barbarians. The paradox of education is precisely this, that as one begins to become conscious, one begins to examine the society in which he is being educated. The game is always rigged, the education game is always rigged for its own self-preservation. Whether that game is democracy, segregation, capitalism, and obviously these are at the forefront of Baldwin's mind. Obviously, it's extremely important to keep in mind the context of Baldwin's talk. It's given in 1963. Schools are still segregated. And the education system is reinforcing this segregation as one of the rules of the game. A true education has to lead us to see the injustice of this. And this is what Baldwin means by consciousness here. In other words, and this is just a restatement of Baldwin's paradox, education must end with a questioning of education itself. Or if you prefer the metaphor, education is a ladder that is meant to be kicked out from under us once we reach the top. This metaphor may sound paradoxical, 
But that's because it is, and it has to be. Because socialization and individualization are at odds with one another. If we accept Rorty's compromise, how do we expect students to learn how to question the rules of the game after having been socialized to accept the rules of the game for their first 15 years of education? To be sure, I'm not suggesting that socialization and individualization are not both legitimate answers to the question, what is education for? I'm simply suggesting that we have to have a more nuanced understanding of how they're related to one another. They are not on equal footing. They are not of the same value. We cannot just give primary and secondary school over to socialization and wait until post-secondary for individualization. I think the best way to promote socialization is to always have in mind that the ultimate goal is the questioning of the rules that students are being socialized into. The only reason to learn the rules of the game is to more effectively break them. And for those of you who prefer to keep this conversation squarely focused on grading and testing, ask yourself this, how do you effectively test and grade that? Thanks for listening to Your School is Effing You. If you're enjoying these episodes, please consider sharing with your colleagues, your students, your teachers. If you have a suggestion for a topic, leave a comment or send me an email at you at gmail.com. Intro-outro music is Don't Let It Rain by Ol' Savannah. Don't let your skill ask